If you would, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. I want to begin this morning by reading our text. We're going to look at Matthew 11 verses 1 to 6 this morning, and it reads, As follows, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight And the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Well, we've made it to Matthew 11 and 12, and these chapters show us the responses to Jesus Christ the King. And for the most part, what we're going to see as we enter into these chapters is that Israel rejected Jesus Christ. They rejected Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. If you've been with us in this study for the whole time, the last couple of years, you you might remember that the very first verse of this gospel, in that verse, Matthew 1.1 we were told that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the Messiah. That verse says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so Jesus was of the line of Abraham. He was of the line of David. And his genealogy then shows that he was eligible for the throne of David, that he was the king of Israel, and of course Matthew says this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Christ not being his last name, but his title, he is the Messiah. And the rest of the first four chapters at the beginning of this book showed us from the Old Testament that Jesus was this promised Messiah. Then in chapters 5 to 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, we saw the authority of Jesus' words. The king declared what kind of a person would be eligible to enter into his kingdom. He told us what kind of a person, who would be able to enter the kingdom. And then in chapter 8 and 9, we saw the authority of the king's deeds. We saw Jesus' healing, every kind of disease and every kind of affliction among the people. And so chapter 8 and 9 focus on the authority of his works, And then in chapter 10, Jesus' words again, we see his commandments to the 12 as they go out to preach and teach and heal in the area around Galilee. Remember, this gospel alternates between discourse and narrative. And so we see Jesus' speech, and then we see his story. We see a a discourse, a sermon from Jesus, and then there's a a narrative section, and it kind of alternates like that five times. And everything up to this point in Matthew has shown us and told us that Jesus is the Christ. But now we're going to see that Israel is going to reject their Christ. Some will receive him, but for the most part, he will be rejected. And it starts even with John the Baptist. Even John the Baptist in our text begins to doubt about Jesus Christ. John the Baptist, of course, was Jesus' forerunner. He was the one who had prepared the way for Jesus. And he had preached the same message that, that Jesus later picked up on. Look at Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1. We're going to kind of just kind of introduce this and think about John the Baptist a little bit. John's introduced in Matthew 3 verse 1. It says, in those days... John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, 
the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And so John was a voice in the wilderness of Judea, and he was calling Israel to repentance. He told Israel to repent, and he told them that judgment was near. If you look at chapter 3 and verse 10, just a little bit further down there, it says, John's, in John's sermon there, he says, even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John's message was a me- message of judgment. A message that there was judgment coming, that the wrath of God was soon to come. And in chapter 3 and verse 7, he told the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? But John also told people that he was not the Christ. He told them that that he was only a voice. He told them that they should believe in and follow the one who is coming after him. And so if you look at Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11, John continues his message and he says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now notice in this text here that we just read that John calls Jesus, he who is coming after me. And that's literally the one after me who is coming. And it's very similar to our text where John asks Jesus in Matthew 11, 3, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And and that's literally there. Are you the one who is coming? And so John is thinking about Jesus, this one who's coming after him. And and now he's wondering in chapter 11, are you the one who is coming? Are you the one that, that I was pointing forward to? Are you the one that I was preparing the way for? And so chapter three, John is announcing this mighty one who is coming. But now in chapter 11, he's asking if Jesus is that one. Remember, John baptized Jesus, and I want to just read that in verses 13 to 17 there. When, when John baptized Jesus, look at what he saw. Look at Matthew three thirteen. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. When John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so, for, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And so it would seem, and we know for sure from the book of John, the gospel of John, that, that John the Baptist saw the Spirit of God descend on Jesus like a dove, and he heard this voice from heaven that Jesus was the Son of God in whom God was well pleased. But now, in prison, John begins to doubt. He begins to wonder if Jesus is the coming one. And we'll talk more about John as we work through our text, but and, and we'll think about, as, as best as we can, why he doubted. And we'll try to learn from him so that we can learn how to deal with our own doubts and the difficulties that happen to us in this life. And that's exactly why I think this text is here, Matthew chapter 11. That's why uh, Matthew puts this little section about John in here. Matthew wants his readers to understand, he wants us to understand that Jesus is the Christ. And he wants us to see who Jesus is. And he wants us to see that even at the same time that he also shows us how the people of Israel began to doubt it and deny it. 
And so these stories in, chapter, in, uh, in chapters 11 and 12 have been chosen to bolster our faith and to prove once more that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and our Savior. I called this message Blessed Belief because verse 6 ends with, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus pronounces a blessing on the one who believes that he is the coming one. There's a blessing on those who do not stumble or who are not offended in the way that John was close to stumbling and close to being offended. And so there's this blessing on those who believe. And so this is blessed belief. And I divided the text today into four sections. We're going to see four statements that prove that Jesus is the Christ Four statements that prove he's the Messiah, the promised one from the Old Testament, the Savior, the one who's going to right all wrongs, the one who's going to undo everything that happened in the fall, the one who's going to, um, in whom all of, all of God's plans are going to come to fulfillment and be completed. The first statement that proves that Jesus is the Christ we're going to see is from Matthew in verses 1 and 2. And then we're going to see John's question in verse 3. And then thirdly, we're going to look at Jesus' response to him in verses 4 and 5. And again, it, it shows that Jesus is the Christ. And then fourthly and finally, we're going to look just very briefly at the end. We're going to look at Jesus' statement in verse 6, where he challenges John to believe. And all of this is meant to encourage us in our doubts. Like John, in the midst of trials and in the midst of difficulties, when things aren't going the way that we think they should go, like John did, we need to look at Jesus and look at his deeds. We need to see that he is the Messiah. We need to look at God's promises for the future, and we need to beware of being offended, of stumbling, and thinking that maybe Jesus should have done something differently or that he should have worked in a different way. And so this is really meant for us to encourage us in our faith, to encourage us to continue to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what this should do as we look at this. Again, four statements that prove that Jesus is the Christ. And the first one is what I called Matthew's affirming narration in verses 1 and 2. Matthew's affirming narration. Matthew's going to affirm for us that Jesus is the Christ. Now, when I first looked at this text, I was going to just include verses 1 and 2 with, with what John asks in verse 3. But actually, Matthew says something here that's really significant and that's really important for us to see as, as he introduces to us this question and this doubt that John the Baptist seems to have. Now, verse 1 is kind of a, a transition verse between the, the sermon that we saw in chapter 10 and the narrative that we're going to look at in chapters 11 and 12. And every discourse, and I, I've shown you this before, but I want to do it again. Every discourse in Matthew ends with the same six Greek words. And we could translate those words just very literally, and it came to be when Jesus finished. Every time Jesus preaches a sermon in this, in this gospel, at, right after that, Matthew says, and it came to be when Jesus finished. The ESV translates them this way. I'll just read them for you. Uh, Matthew seven twenty eight at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Then there's our verse, Matthew 11, 1. We'll come back to that in a minute. Matthew 13, 53, at the end of the parables. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. Then Matthew 19, verse 1 says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And then Matthew 26, and verse 1 again, When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples... And of course, we're looking at verse 1 of Matthew 11. And when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. And so Jesus had finished, he had completed instructing, or maybe even better, commanding his 12. And presumably, after that sermon that we looked at, he sent them out on this mission. But Matthew doesn't actually tell us that they went 
or even anything about how their mission went or anything about what they did. He, he really focuses instead on Jesus Christ and, and not on his disciples. Matthew wanted us to hear Jesus' instructions in chapter 10, but he's concerned about Jesus, not so much his disciples. And so they likely did go out, and then Jesus went and met them and traveled to the cities where they were, and then Jesus himself taught and preached in their cities, the cities of Galilee where he was sending them in chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. Remember, he sent them out in the, into the area of Galilee. And so when Jesus had finished instructing, he went, and then verse 2 kind of picks up the narrative. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples. When John heard in prison, he sent word by his disciples. And so John heard about what Jesus Christ had been doing while he was in prison. Remember, after Jesus was baptized, which we just read in chapter 3, John was arrested. And I think it's helpful as we think about what's happening in this text to realize that Jesus and John didn't really have a lot of overlap in their ministries. There wasn't a lot of overlap between them. Jesus, remember, came from Galilee to Judea. So he's, he's coming south into the land of Judea to the Jordan, and he gets baptized by John in the Jordan. And then after that, it seems immediately after that, Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And it would seem that then not long after that, not long after Jesus' temptation, John was arrested. And so if you look at Matthew chapter 4 and verse 11, right after the, the, the last verse of the temptation there, it says, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And then verse 12 says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And what I want you to kind of pick up from that is that Jesus began doing his miracles as we've seen he he did them in Galilee and he did them then away from John and and most of Jesus's mighty works that we've seen in this gospel were done when John was arrested and in prison and so it's likely that John hadn't seen much if he even saw any of Jesus's mighty works. John didn't, wasn't an eyewitness to the mighty works of the Lord Jesus Christ. But now in prison, he's hearing from his disciples about the deeds of the Christ. Now, John was in prison for about a year before he was killed. And we're going to see that story later on in Matthew chapter 14. But John was in prison for this year as Jesus was doing these amazing things that we've seen him do in Galilee. And so here's John, the forerunner of the Messiah, the one who proclaimed the greatness of this one who would come after him. He said, I wasn't even worthy to untie his sandals. He proclaimed that this one is the one that he, that would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In other words, John proclaimed that, that Jesus Christ or, or the Christ, the one who was coming after him would bring both salvation and judgment. He would gather his wheat into the barn, but burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. And so John's message was one of salvation and judgment. The one, a message of the greatness of the one who would come after him. And now maybe a year into Jesus's ministry, John is hearing about what Jesus has been doing. And if you think about it, Jesus has gathered some some 12 disciples or maybe more, you know, you, you think about what was John expecting to happen with this great one who is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And he's hearing about what Jesus is doing. And, and sure, he, he heard about some miracles, but Jesus has about 12 disciples, maybe a few more. The, the crowds are interested in him. He's done a lot of healing and preaching and teaching. But up to this point, there's been no judgment. There's been no sign of the coming kingdom. Remember, John's message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so you kind of wonder if John's sitting in prison and, and he's, he's looking out at, and hearing about what Jesus is doing 
And maybe he's thinking to himself, I don't know if this Jesus is ready to sit on the throne of David and, and rule over the kingdom of God. And, and so John begins to wonder. And John wonders too, maybe about his own imprisonment. After all, one of the signs of the Messiah in Isaiah 61, and actually I'll have you just go ahead and turn there. Turn to Isaiah 61 with me for a moment. And you might want to put your uh, Bible marker there if you, because we're going to go back to Isaiah 61 in a little bit here. But Isaiah 61, just verse 1 for now, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound." Now that word there, notice in verse 1 there, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. That's the the verb there for the the noun Messiah. Those two words are connected. The the Messiah, the Christ, is the anointed one. And so this text here is speaking about the anointed one. The spirit of God is upon him and he's going to bring good news to the poor and he's going to bind up the brokenhearted, but he's also going to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And you have to wonder if John isn't thinking about maybe a verse like that as he's sitting in prison for a year, hearing about the deeds of the Messiah, hearing about what Jesus was doing. Now, perhaps John's thinking, well, Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, but it didn't really look at this point like he was baptizing others with the Spirit, and he wasn't opening John's prison. In other words, Jesus wasn't meeting John's expectations. John had certain expectations for the Messiah, and Jesus didn't seem to be fulfilling them, at least not yet. Now, perhaps... If John had heard Jesus' sermon like we did in Matthew chapter 10, he might have been better equipped to face what he was facing. Jesus had just taught, and you'll remember if you've been with us these last number of weeks, Jesus had taught his disciples that they would be imprisoned and beaten and hated by the world. He taught them not to expect immediate peace on earth, but to expect persecution instead. But John hadn't heard that message, and when Jesus wasn't meeting his expectations, it seems like he began to wonder. But before we say too much about John, we need to notice what Matthew himself says in this text. And so as he introduces John's doubt, Matthew tells us something important about Jesus. Look again at verse 2. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ... He sent word by his disciples. And so Matthew slips in this little affirmation about Jesus. John heard about the deeds of the Christ. And literally, it's the, it's the works of the Christ. And it really is the Christ there. Some translations, if you have a, uh, another translation beside the ESV, it might not say the Christ, but the, the article is definitely there and it belongs there. This is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised king from the Old Testament, the savior of the world. And this gospel, again, began by telling us that Jesus is or that he was the Christ. And so here, at this point, Matthew reminds us that Jesus is the Christ and the deeds that John is hearing are the deeds of the Christ. And so Matthew doesn't want us to doubt. He wants us to use John's question to further confirm what he's already told us that Jesus is the Christ. And so that's Matthew's affirming narrative. He tells us that Jesus is the Christ. And then secondly, the second statement here that proves that Jesus is the Christ comes from John's question in verse 3. And so number 2 in your outline, I called it John's doubting question versus Kind of verse 2 again a little bit, and then verse 3. So again, look at verse 2. When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? 
Now, I've already said a lot about John and his imprisonment and, and maybe even some of the possible reasons that his question arises. You know, I think we wonder when we come to a text like this, how could the prophet who prepared the way for Jesus wonder if he was the one who is to come? And so we wonder about that. We, we think, how did John get to this point where he starts to doubt whether Jesus is the Christ? Now, Matthew doesn't really try to answer our questions here. Matthew's not super concerned about John, and he's not interested really too much in why John began to doubt. I think we wonder about John. We wonder why, why did he begin to doubt. But Matthew, he just wants to show us the Lord Jesus. And I think the best answer to our question about John is just simply to see him as, as being discouraged He's in jail, he, he, was, he was roaming free all over the wilderness, and now he's confined in a prison, and he's discouraged maybe a little bit in jail, maybe growing a little bit impatient and starting to wonder, when is Jesus going to get this together and set up his kingdom and set the prisoners free and get me out of this place? And, 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 and he's starting to think, this, this Jesus isn't maybe meeting my expectations of what I thought the Messiah would do. What he was expecting Jesus to do wasn't happening yet, and so he wonders, and he sends by his disciples, are you the one, or shall we look for another? And that word another there in the original indicates another of a different kind. Should we look for a a different kind of a Messiah? You know, when we think about it, nothing makes us doubt like trials and unmet expectations in our life, right? When, when, we're, when, when the Lord's not doing things the way that we think he should, that's when we begin to doubt and wonder and, and, and get kind of unsettled about what we once knew. And that's why Jesus said to his disciples in chapter 10, and he warned us that we would face persecution. That's why the health and wealth teaching is so dangerous, because when we think that having Jesus is going to make everything go well, and instead it, it brings trials and difficulties, we too can begin to doubt. And John likely thought that the kingdom would come immediately or that Jesus would begin his judgment on the wicked sooner. You know, I think about my own life and, and when our two early, uh, early born children passed away, 2005 and 2007, it was, it was harder to deal with for us in our lives because Jody and I thought that we would, if we walked with the Lord, we would be blessed. We thought, we thought just generally speaking, life would go well if we were followers of Christ. And that's often the case. And that's why there's a, there's a hint of truth in this kind of health and wealth message. There, there, there is a blessing on obedience. And that's why this health and wealth stuff is so believable, because there is a blessing on obedience. Disobedience for a Christian uh, and, and a true believer, disobedience will bring God's discipline into our lives. And so things won't go well for us, generally speaking, if we don't honor the Lord and walk in his ways. And on the other side of that, obedience to God and obedience to his word will keep us from all kinds of trouble. But the Lord never promises us a life without trials in this world. Not yet. Not until the kingdom comes. And so there is going to be a day where there'll be no more trials, there'll be no more difficulties, but that day is not today. The Lord promises us that he will work all things together for our good, but he doesn't promise us that all things will be good in and of themselves. In this world, we will have tribulation, right? You, you know that verse. In this world, that's John sixteen thirty three. Jesus said, um, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so we need to remember that in this world, we will have tribulation. We need to remember what Jesus told us in Matthew 10. And if we'd be free from doubts, we need to know what to expect in a sinful, sin-cursed world that we live in now. And so we might not know exactly what caused John's question or why he began to wonder if maybe he and his disciples should look for another one. 
We can see what he asked, though, and he asked about the coming one. And he took his concerns to the right place. He went straight to the Lord Jesus with his questions. That's the right place to go. And that's exactly where we should take our doubts to. If we're struggling with doubts and, and concerns, we need to go straight to the Lord Jesus in prayer and ask him ourselves. Now, John, as he asked this question, should, um, again in verse 3, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? John seems to pick this language up from Psalm 118 and verse 26. Psalm 118, 26 says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You'll remember that on Palm Sunday, the the people laid down their branches and they quoted this verse as well as Jesus came in the name of the Lord. And it seems like John probably picked up this language and he spoke about the Messiah as the one who is coming or the one who is to come. Now, Jesus is going to reassure John that despite his question, he is the Christ. And Matthew is going to use this to encourage us as well. And that's going to be number three then in our outline, Jesus's reassuring confirmation. So we've seen Matthew's affirming narration. Then secondly, John's doubting question. Now third, Jesus's reassuring confirmation. And that's in verses four and five. And so Jesus says in verse four, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus answers John in a better way than just simply saying yes. I'm I'm the one who is to come. He could have just simply said yes, but he, he points John instead to the evidence that he is the one who is to come. And Jesus sends John's disciples back with a simple message, go and tell John what you see and hear. Go tell John more. You know, he had heard in verse two, the works of the Christ. And now Jesus wants these disciples to go and tell John more about the works of the Christ. They're going to be eyewitnesses for John. And then through that, they're also now eyewitnesses for us. And in the Greek, the word translated what in what you hear and see, go tell John what you hear and see, that word is plural. And so we might translate it to kind of bring out the plural. We might tell it, translate it, go and tell John the things that you see and hear. There's multiple things that are happening at that moment Well, John's disciples arrive that they're going to go back and tell John about those things that they heard and saw. And those things are listed in verse 5. But before we look at them, there's just another thing that I want to point out from verse 4. The words there, hear and see, are in the present tense. John's disciples were hearing and seeing these things. It's as though Jesus was continually or constantly doing these things that are described in verse 5. They weren't just one-time events that that he did one time, but these were ongoing realities throughout Jesus' ministry. And now Matthew has already given us an example of each of these things, and so he's prepared us for this verse already. But if we look at Matthew's example, what what Matthew's done is he's given us just kind of one example of each of these things, but we're not to think of those as though they were only one-time things that Jesus did. Jesus was continually, constantly, habitually doing these things throughout all of Galilee. John's disciples came to him and and Luke tells us that he sent two and some of the manuscripts kind of change a word there to instead of John sent through his disciples to John sent two disciples. But Luke does confirm that it was two of these disciples that John sent And, and, and they came and they saw these things themselves. 
And so if you just think about that, and that's really what we need to do here, is we need to kind of enter into this. We're, 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 we're coming from prison with John, and we show up in Galilee where Jesus is, and now we see all of these things that the Lord Jesus was doing in that very moment. Now, if you think about these disciples and disciples of John, they, they had never seen a miracle like that before. John, remember, John was not a worker of miracles. John was a preacher and a, an ascetic. He lived in the wilderness, a very uh, unique person in, in redemptive history. But John did no miracles. And so these guys show up from John, and what they see is this habitual, continual, miracle-working situation that, that Jesus was leading. It, it would have been amazing to see this. In the history of the world, this is really important, in the history of the world, there has never been a ministry like the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody had ever done works like this before in history. And so we ask then, well, what are these things that these disciples were hearing and seeing? And again, that's in verse Five. I'll read it again. It says, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And each of these things takes us back to Matthew 8 and 9, where we saw Jesus' Jesus's authority over sin and sickness and Satan. Remember, Jesus demonstrated by these miracles that he had the power to bring in the kingdom of God. The Old Testament prophesied of a rule of a son of David, of a a kingdom that was going to be based in Israel, but over the entire world. And during that kingdom rule of the Messiah, sickness and death would be virtually non-existent in the world. And Jesus' authority in those miracles showed that he had the power and that he could accomplish everything that was necessary to establish that kingdom. And so the miracles that John's disciples were seeing and hearing, they bring us back to Matthew 8 and 9, but they would have brought John back even further to the Old Testament and specifically to the book of Isaiah where it was prophesied that the, the Messiah would do works like those ones that Jesus was doing. And so let's go through these one by one, these, these miracles that Jesus did in verse 5. I'm not going to give you kind of time as we do this to, to turn to each one. But if you want, you might want to put your finger in Isaiah 35, uh, verses 4, 5, and 6 there. And Isaiah 61 as well is, is where most of these are found in Isaiah. But again, Matthew 11, verse 5, Jesus says, first of all, the blind receive their sight. And as we think about this one, we should remember that no blind person was ever cured in the Old Testament, nor was there ever a a recorded recovery of sight to a blind person in the New Testament, except by the Lord Jesus Christ. Never before or after did anyone else ever heal blindness. And this is important, I think, because the Old Testament prophesies that the Messiah would heal the blind. And so the Messiah is to heal the blind, but there's never been anyone who has cured the blind other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And he did it multiple times, and we're going to see that throughout Matthew. We've already seen it in Matthew 9, 27 to 31, where two blind men were healed in a house. And remember, Jesus touched their eyes and their eyes were opened. Now, as we go through this gospel, we're going to see three more examples of this later on. In Matthew 12, 22, it says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw again that was Matthew 12:22. Then Matthew 12:29 to 34 says this. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him and that's Jesus. And behold there were two blind men sitting by the roadside and when they heard that Jesus was passing by they cried out, "Lord, have mercy on us, son of David." And the crowd rebuked them telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, "Lord, have mercy on us, son of David." And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. 
And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. And then again, we'll see it in Matthew 21 and verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And so again, multiple people, Jesus opened the eyes of of blind people many, many times, even throughout this gospel. And of course, even in this moment, there's, there's blind people receiving their sight as an ongoing thing as John's disciples come. Now this came right from the Old Testament. Isaiah 29, 18 says, in that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. Isaiah 35, 5 says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Isaiah 42, verse 6 says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness, speaking to the Messiah here, and I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And again, this is speaking of Christ here, the Messiah. Verse 7, Isaiah 42, 7 continues to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out a, a to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And so two things we see there that are, are kind of pertinent to our text. One is the Messiah is going to open the eyes of the blind, but maybe John was thinking about the other part of this verse. The Messiah is also going to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And so Jesus healed the, the eyes of the blind, the blind receive their sight. And then in verse five, next, he says, the lame walk, the lame walk. Now we saw this in the story of the paralytic who was healed. Remember the, the paralytic whose sins were forgiven. And in the other gospels, the, they go a little bit more detailed and he's let down in a, a basket or on a mat kind of through the roof of the house. Jesus told that paralytic in verse Matthew nine, six, rise up pick up your bed and go home. And so he rose and went home. We're going to see again in uh, Matthew 15 verses 30 to 31. We're going to see again, healing of the lame. Uh, Matthew 15, 30 says this, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled, healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Earlier, I already read Matthew 21, 14. Listen to it again. It says, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Now, this was spoken of 700 years earlier, again, in Isaiah chapter 35 and verse 6. It says, then the lame, then the lame man, I'm going to read it again. I'm not doing it right. And then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Then the, then shall the lame, the lame man leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. We'll see that again in a moment. The, the Old Testament, as we kind of move into the next one now, doesn't speak about lepers being cleansed by the Messiah. But if you remember, both Moses and Elijah cured leprosy at various times. And for whatever reason, Jesus wanted John to know that he was also curing lepers, maybe just because he was curing lepers at, at that moment. The first miracle that we saw in Matthew 8 was the healing of a leper. Next, Matthew eleven five, Jesus says that the deaf hear, the deaf hear. And the, the word there translated deaf is also the same word that's used for somebody who is mute. And, and most often, or at least often in the ancient world, they, they thought they didn't have separate words for this. And so somebody was, was deaf, mute. And so that's the same original Greek word. In Matthew nine thirty two to 34, a demon-possessed man who was mute That same word there was healed so that he spoke. Here in chapter 11, the cure that Jesus talks about results in hearing. And so we know that this was deaf people that he was curing and they were now hearing. Again, in Matthew 12, 22, a similar case has a demon oppressed blind and mute man. And when Jesus heals him, he's speaking and seeing. 
Again, Matthew, Isaiah 29, 18, John might have thought of this when Jesus is, when his disciples came and reported to him. Isaiah 28, 19, in that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. Now the final miracle that that uh, in Matthew eleven five that Jesus wants John's disciples to tell him is that the dead are raised. And in Matthew 9, verses 18 to 26, we saw Jesus raise the daughter of a synagogue ruler back from the dead. Remember, she had died, but Jesus raised her back to life. In Matthew 10 and verse 8, Jesus had also given that same authority to his disciples. He told them to raise the dead as they went out on their mission throughout Galilee. And we know from later Old Testament history or New Testament history that both Peter and Paul raised people from the dead after Jesus himself was risen from the dead. And thinking about this, this resurrection of dead people, John might have thought of, again, Isaiah twenty six nineteen. It says, your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. Those who dwell in the dust awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. Again, that's Isaiah 26, 19. And so look again, Matthew 11 and verse 5. It says, the, bl- the blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And the last thing that, that is mentioned here, it comes from Isaiah 61, verses one and two. And we've been seeing Jesus preach the good news since the beginning of his ministry. In Matthew 4 and verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Matthew 4.23 says that he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And you remember the Sermon on the Mount began with blessed are the poor. That's the same word. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now the poor in spirit meant there that those who were spiritually bankrupt, those who were, had really nothing to offer spiritually speaking, those who recognized that they had nothing to offer God, nothing to commend themselves to God, and those people are blessed Theirs is the kingdom of heaven because they're going to come in repentance and trust in Jesus Christ. And Isaiah might have had the same kind of poor in mind when he wrote in Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3, it says again, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is speaking about the Messiah, the anointed one. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of judgment, or, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. And again, specifically in verse one, to bring good news to the poor. That was one of the things that the Messiah was going to do. The anointed one was going to bring this good news to the poor. Now what's interesting as we think about both of these texts, Isaiah 35 verses five and six and Isaiah 61 verses 1 to 3, both of them in their near context not only refer to the the salvation miracles that the Messiah is going to do, but they also refer to judgment as well. And remember John's message, John the Baptist's message was a message of salvation and judgment. And again, so far, as we think about Jesus's ministry, he has really only brought about the salvation part of, of those texts. 
The power of his healing and his preaching were unparalleled, never before seen in Israel, never before seen in the history of the world. But so far, his ministry hadn't been very broad yet. It wasn't a, a worldwide ministry. It wasn't, it wasn't a salvation that kind of went maybe as far as John would have thought. But if John could have thought, when, when, when his disciples came to him, if John could have thought about those passages from Isaiah, that, which is really John the Baptist's book, remember Isaiah, John's passage is Isaiah chapter 40, that he's going to be a voice in the wilderness. If John would have thought about those, he would have realized that Jesus was fulfilling the healing and salvation aspects of those promises, and that if he was fulfilling the, the salvation aspects of those Old Testament promises, then surely he would also bring that judgment too, and he would bring it at the right time. Remember Isaiah 61 and verse 2, we see that judgment that the Messiah was going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And again, Isaiah 35 and verse 3 says, Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with, recomp- with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And then right after that, verse 5, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and so on. And so both of these passages not only speak about this salvation that the Messiah would do, but also of a time of judgment that would be f- f- coming from the Messiah as well. And so Jesus was showing John that He had begun to fulfill some of these prophecies and therefore he was the coming one. Even if he hadn't done everything that the coming one will ultimately do, Jesus is telling John, I am the coming one. And in effect, you need to wait for me to finish all of my work because I will surely do it. And the same thing also applies to us. 2,000 years later, we can look at what Jesus did in his first coming We can see all of the the miracles and healings that he did, and we can know for certain that he is the Christ. But we still await the fulfillment of all of the judgment promises. We still await the fulfillment of the kingdom and his judgment, which will happen at his second coming. And so we do well to remember this in our trials and in our difficulties. When life is hard in this world, everything that Jesus has promised will happen when he returns. Everything that he promised, he will do. And until then, we need to be patient and we need to continue to believe in Jesus Christ. And when we doubt, just like John did with Jesus, we should look back to those days, to the days of Jesus' first coming, and we should look back, I think especially for us, to his resurrection from the dead, and we should say that he fulfilled the scriptures with his first coming, he will surely fulfill the rest with his second coming. And so even though we might face difficulties and trials now, we can know that one day we will reign with Christ forever in his kingdom. No word of Jesus Christ will fall to the ground. He will right all wrongs. He will undo the curse. He will restore creation to paradise. He will end death and bring in everlasting peace and everlasting righteousness and everlasting blessedness. Because that's what the Christ will do. And Jesus is the Christ. And so that was the third statement that proves that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus' reassuring confirmation. And now finally, we're going to look at Jesus' inspiring correction in verse 6. Look at verse 6. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Well, you might wonder then, how does this prove that Jesus is, is the Christ. Well, let's just look at this here for a moment. The word there, blessed, is makarios. This is a word that, that I probably would have taught you when we were in the Sermon on the Mount. Makarios, blessed, means to be happy, means to be fortunate. The idea is uh, somebody who is privileged. This blessed person, a blessed person like this is somebody who's in an enviable position. 
They're in a, a place where others would want to be or where others should want to be. The idea of this word is to be favored. And so this blessed person is favored because they're in an enviable position, one that others should want, a fortunate, privileged, happy position. And the blessed one is blessed in this case, according to Jesus, because they are not offended by Jesus. This word offended is another important word that I, I want to give you. It, it's called uh, scandalizo. comes from a word scandalon, and you can almost hear kind of our English word scandalous with it. This word scandalizo is used 29 times in Matthew, the verb form, and it, it means to cause somebody to stumble or to give an offense, hence it's translated the one who is not offended by me, not caused to stumble by me. And, and it has the idea often of, of causing someone or leading somebody into sin. This word scandalizo came from a, a word that was used uh, of a stick in a bait trap. I think that might relate to some of you, a stick in a bait trap. You know, earlier this winter, I was able to f- trap some cats on my front front yard and there's we we got this little live trap and there's a little trigger point there that as soon as the cat gets the food and puts some weight on this little trigger point boom trap closes and the cat is trapped and he is now offended he's he's triggered the thing and and his doom is now sure he's he's locked in this trap and so if you if you knock the trigger you are trapped, and the idea here is being trapped by sin. This scandal is this, this thing that, that's going to trap you in a sin. And so it's a, a trigger, a scandal, an offense. The, the thing that brings one's downfall, once that cat triggers that trap, the, the downfall of the cat is pretty much certain unless somebody releases that cat uh, into the wild. And so um, Jesus is saying... That John is going to be blessed if his view, if John's view of Jesus doesn't bring about his downfall. John's kind of in a dangerous position as he's starting to doubt if Jesus is the Christ. And so John, Jesus is saying to John, John, you will be blessed, you will be privileged, you will be happy so long as you don't be offended, so long as what I'm doing in my ministry right now doesn't cause you to go astray. And so John was close to tripping up on Jesus Christ. He was close to being offended that Jesus wasn't acting the way that John wanted him to act. And so Jesus says to him again, John, you will be blessed so long as you don't stumble at this point. In other words, Jesus is calling on John to continue to believe that he is the Christ. And this blessing is not only for John, but it's also for everyone who will believe and continue to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so I would just encourage you, if you're here today and you haven't trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, I would call you to believe on him for your salvation. Jesus is the only way that we can be made right with a holy God, even as we sang about today and prayed about today. The only chance for us to be right with God is through the righteousness that comes to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and maybe you're struggling with doubts or difficulties in your life, maybe you're like kind of like John and there's, there's trials happening in your life and you wonder why is Jesus allowing this to happen? Why are things going this way? Well, don't be offended by him. Don't, don't, don't use this as a chance to go astray from him, but instead continue to believe in Jesus Christ and know that in the future he will right all wrongs and he will fix everything that's, that's been broken in this world because of sin. And you can know that because he is the Christ. And because he's the Christ, he's going to do the things that scripture tells us that the Christ will do, but he might just not do them on our timetable. We need to be patient and continue to believe in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word here in, in this gospel of Matthew. We thank you that even John's doubts are used for us. 
that we might know that you are the Christ, the Messiah. We thank you for your amazing ministry that you had in this world when you were here on the, on the earth. And we thank you for the ministry that you've had in our lives, working in our lives so that we would believe that you are the Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray, Father, and I pray for everyone who is here that they would be blessed in the way that Jesus meant in Matthew eleven six, 6, that, that we would be in this favorable position, which is a position of salvation rather than a position of judgment. And so, Father, we pray for those who are here that you would save them by your grace, that they would be favored by you through your son, Jesus Christ, and that they would have this blessed belief that Jesus calls us to in this passage. We pray for those who are struggling with difficulties in this world, that you would strengthen them, that you would encourage them by the knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.